If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, take them up and uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read verses 40 through, 44 through 45. Also, um, keep your thumb in Acts chapter 4. We're going to visit that uh, portion of Scripture as well. Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 45, and then Acts chapter 4 as well, verse 32. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Mike Kazrowski. I'm one of the pastors on staff here uh, at FAC. It gives me great honor to be able to come up before you and uh, lead in our time of uh, worshiping God through the study of uh, God's Word. Um, something here at FAC that we like to do and what, frankly, I think we need to do more of is take time to celebrate, uh, to celebrate how God is moving through FAC. And so something remarkable happened uh, this past week, something worth celebrating. I've had permission to tell this story as not to embarrass the person, but um, this past Monday, uh, there was a woman that uh, showed up um, fairly randomly. Uh, we, we, di- we didn't know her, um, and she came seeking, in her words, to be found. Um, it reminded me of the story from Luke 15 uh, that talk about the lost sheep and how God went to find the lost sheep. And most people, when they search out s- for spiritual things, they always say, I want to find God. I don't know where God is, and I want to find him. But this was a much different rhetoric. Uh, this young woman knew she was lost and knew she needed to be found. And so um, Jeanette Paradis actually was on staff with us and myself took this young woman into my office. We spoke for about an hour and a half. We shared the gospel with her, the good news of Jesus, and she put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ right then and there. Yeah, absolutely. And the more exciting thing for me is that uh, this is something she wishes to continue to pursue. She's actually with us this morning, um, and we're, we're thrilled to have her, and we're excited about the way that God has moved through this church in the, in the lives of people. And so um, we'll go ahead and uh, look to Acts chapter 2. Um, as we continue to transition in our search for a senior pastor, we've decided to take this opportunity to kind of reevaluate our values here at FAC. We want to take a look at the community life of what that first Christian church was like, and we want to examine in our own church family uh, whether or not we truly value the important things. And we look at this as an opportunity maybe to uh, go back to the basics. In a church's journey, uh, it's easy to get caught up in the programs and get caught up in the daily schedule and to be caught up in the things and to stray from the basics. And so we're going back to the basics. And this morning we get the opportunity to address this matter of mutual care, mutual care. And so I'm going to read the, those two verses in Acts chapter two, verses 44 to 45. And then we're going to immediately turn over to Acts five, uh, chapter four. Um, and, and this is the passage where we'll spend our time this morning. It's just a deeper description of what was going on uh, in that first Christian church. So with that, Acts chapter two, verses 44 through 45. This is what it says. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And then over to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
And with great uh, power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. And now as we come to your word, would your spirit illuminate, uh, illuminate our study of it, Father? Would, would we not waste this moment to look to see what you have to say to us? Lord, would you loosen our ears to hear what we need to hear? Would you convict us where we need to be convicted? Would you encourage us where we need to be encouraged? Lord, let us hear from you this morning. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. From a young age, we are taught this value of sharing, right? Uh, But due to our own sinful flesh, it's not a value that is learned easily. I know this is the case because most of the fights that my children get in revolve around this idea of sharing. Just last week, we were in the car, and my kids began fighting in the back seat over who got to hold the sticker book, right? This is my life (laughs) right now, and the fights that I have to to break up. And as ridiculous as this scenario is, I'm afraid that it's still a lesson that I am learning in my adulthood. For instance, a couple months ago, I'm about to share a story that makes me look really bad. Um, Several months ago, I prepared for myself in our kitchen for myself and only myself, a a beautiful, magnificent bowl of my favorite cereal, Reese's Puffs, right? (laughs) I took this bowl and I sat on the couch so that I could watch TV while I enjoy this magnificent bowl of cereal. And then my wife came over and she took a seat right next to me. And men, you understand that women have this uncanny ability to communicate exactly what they want without saying a single word. And my wife, she, she sits down uh, next to me. She, she kind of cuddles up to me. She puts her arm around me. And then she just like gently leans her head forward. And then she smiles. And I knew that this was communicating only one thing. Would you please give me a bite? It took every single ounce of sanctification in my soul to share a bite with her. But I did. And then, in the, in the, in, out of my generosity in giving her a bite, she has the nerve to ask me for another bite. <laughs> I looked at her and I said, I would sooner rather get up and pour you your own bowl of cereal than give you a second bite of my cereal. (laughs) I have problems, (laughs) right? As we read this passage in Acts 2, we clearly see that they, uh, this was not an issue for those first believers, They were much more mature in their sacrificial and mutual care for each other than I am. And because of their mutual care for each other, we find in verse 34 of Acts chapter 4 that there was not a needy person among them. 
This is really quite the feat. And frankly, I think it's actually a good objective to strive for here at FAC, that there would be nobody, uh, no one in our community here that's in need. This is an admirable goal. We should strive to be a, uh, in a position where there are no needy people in the church. Now, before we move on, it's important to see that um, what this isn't. Okay, and what this passage isn't teaching. Some people look at this uh, and seem to believe that this community takes the shape of what uh, has been written and defined as uh, what they call Christian communism. Right? It's this, this idea, they interpret this passage as saying that we as believers should live in a context where everything is shared. That it's the obligation of a community to make sure that everybody is on the same level economically. And if you look through history, you'll actually come across cult-like communities that have attempted to live in this manner. But this is a huge misinterpretation uh, for two reasons. First, there is nothing in the text that seems to suggest that everyone was on the same economic level. It's just not there. They did not sell all of their possessions and homes and divvy it out equally among the people. We know that this is the case, especially in Acts 2, when it later goes on to say that they would have these fellowship meals in their homes. How on earth could they have fellowship meals in their homes if everybody has sold their houses? This is just not the case, right? Uh, All the text describes here is that the basic needs of everyone were met. It wasn't that all of their desires were met, but their needs were met. They were provided for. Second, there is a clear implication in this text that these people sold their properties willingly. It was not a forced practice. It was out of the generosity of their heart to provide for the needs of uh, of the people. And this is actually reinforced later in chapter 5 when we come across the story of Ananias and Sapphira. If you kept reading, we get this story about a husband and wife who go and sell their, their property and then they take the proceeds and they only give a portion of it to the apostles to divvy out those in need. But then they get into some trouble. And once again, many people misinterpret this story. They think because they withheld uh, the, the, the money, that's what got them in trouble. No, what got them in trouble was the fact that they lied to the apostles. They lied to God. They basically said, this is all the money that we got from selling our Uh, from selling our land, but it simply wasn't the case. And where our idea is reinforced actually comes in in verse four of chapter five. There's a conversation that Peter uh, has with Ananias. He's basically saying, why did you lie when it was in your possession to begin with? Verse four specifically says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? What Peter's saying is Ananias, you you could have kept your house. You didn't have to sell it. And even after you sold it, you didn't have to give everything. The, 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 The reason I'm upset with you is because you lied about it. But it shows us that this was not a forced giving. It was merely out of the generosity of their heart in how much to give. It's important that when we talk about mutual care, it should never be in the context of a forced or even obligatory motivation. 
the motivation to give at any moment must be generated in the heart, not from an outside force. This is the model that was set before us in Acts 4. The hearts of those who were wealthier in the community were touched by the need and they were driven to meet those needs of the others, not forced. And in response to this, we're told that they would sell a portion of their property, of their possessions to meet the needs of others. And the way that this is written in the second part of our passage, it seems to suggest that this was an ongoing process. See, as uh, needs would arise, those who were wealthier would be cut to the heart and be inclined to meet the needs of those less fortunate as they came up. This was not a one-time gift. This was not a one-time transaction. It was in their very character to say, I want to meet the needs of somebody else. I can meet the needs of somebody else, and so I will continue to meet the needs of somebody else. This is a lifestyle, a lifestyle of caring for those in need not a one-time gift. It was a sharing that was done over and over again as needs were made known. And this shows us that their motivation wasn't one out of obligation, but of the heart. It was in their very character to do what they could do to provide for those in need. And if we go back a few verses to, to, to verse 32, the very beginning of the passage, we see that this character trait uh, to care for the needs of others was established by a certain culture among the believers. When we talk about community life, culture is an extremely important word. We can strategize all we want. Here at FAC, we can, we can make plans. We can strategize. We can uh, plan out our steps in an orderly fashion. But as a pastor, uh, I have heard say this in the past, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? Culture is extremely important. The mutual care attitude among the people in this community was but a reflection of their culture, specifically their unity in community. A deep unity was at the heart of their mutual care. We're told that that everyone who believed were of one heart and soul. That's verse 32. And this could only be achieved through one of the uh, things that the Acts church was devoted to in Acts chapter 2, that being fellowship. It's this word, uh, this Greek word um, that is koinonia. Pastor Scott preached on this a couple of weeks back. Typically, when we say the word fellowship, though, we, we think of coming together and brushing shoulders with one another and generally enjoying each other's company, right? We're, we're cordial to one another, but then we retreat back to our own lives until next week. Fellowship, in the biblical sense, carries a much more substantial implication. Fellowship, in the biblical sense, is a picture of sharing in life together. It is a mutual, personal investment into each other. It's the authentic feeling that I care about you and you care about me, that I am going to walk through this life with you side by side, and you are going to walk through life with me side by side, and we are going to to, um, address and work through all the baggage that that brings as we bleed into each other's lives. 
This is what being of one heart and soul looks like. Unfortunately, I think we've turned church into something that it was never meant to be. We've turned it into a weekly meeting for a couple hours. That's not real community. That's not real fellowship, right? If this building were to burn down today, FAC would still exist because FAC is not a building. FAC is you. FAC is a community of believers that is walking through this life together hand in hand. And it's in the context of this community, walking hand in hand, that mutual care is possible. If they were not together, and if they were not of one heart and of one soul, they could not have all things in common. You see, in order to participate, to, to be a participant in this beautiful practice of mutual care, you must be known. You must be connected to the greater body of Christ. Are you known? Or do you come here just on Sunday mornings? You slip in and out, and you form no real relationships. This biblical idea of community seems so foreign to us because we live in an individualistic age. We live private lives, and we attempt to find solutions to our problems without letting anybody in. It goes against the very fabric of our sin nature to open up our personal lives to others to see. However, this step of vulnerability is an essential component if we're to follow the model shown here in Acts. You have to let people in. You have to be joined into community. This is extremely important to understand, especially if you are a guy in the room. Men, could I, could I just address you for a second? Because I feel like we're a little bit lazier when it comes to our involvement in community. Our uh, call, man, our job is to lead our families spiritually, to be the spiritual leaders of your families. But in order to be able to lead effectively, you must place yourself where you are surrounded by other godly men. Gentlemen, you need community. You need to be vulnerable. You need to find a place where you can develop community in your life. And I am not convinced that real community can be achieved in the context of only showing up on Sunday mornings. You cannot form community if the only time you brush shoulders with other godly men is for an hour on Sunday mornings. Now, we do have opportunities here at FAC to, to get you connected, but it doesn't even have to take place in a formal setting. It can take place in an informal setting. You can go and hang out with other godly men in an informal setting. You will be amazed. If you do that consistently, you will be amazed at the transformation that will take place in your heart. And ladies, please allow your men the freedom. Please allow your husbands the freedom to go and be with other godly men. For the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your children, 
I am convinced that community, community is the number one need for men in our context today. Because we are communal beings. This, this is for everybody. We as humans are communal beings and we, we all desire this sense of belonging. It is woven into the fabric of our soul to be in community. And the reason for this is because we are made in the image of God. And God himself is a communal God. We call him a triune God. It's the Trinity, right? It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We, we serve one God who takes on three different persons. And for all of eternity, uh, the, the Trinity has been in relationship with each other, right? The, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit uh, demonstrate what our relationships are supposed to look like in community. Because the different persons of the Trinity are always, you see this in scripture, they are always seeking to serve and glorify the other parts. And so they're, they're actually kind of revolving, not around themselves, but around each other in, in self-giving love. And it forms a, a beautiful picture that C.S. Lewis calls the dance. It's the dance. As they revolve around each other, this beautiful dance occurs, which illustrates, once again, what relationships are created to look like. And being made in the image of God, this communal God, we have been invited to participate in the dance. We have been invited to come in and enjoy that relationship. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, writes about our involvement in this dance, our response to God. And this is what he, he writes um, in one of his books, King's Cross. He's speaking as if God is talking to us. He says, if you glorify me, if you center your entire life on me, if you find me beautiful for who I am in myself, then you will step into the dance, which is what you were made for. You are made not just to believe in me or to be a spiritual in some general way, not just to pray and get a bit of inspiration when things are tough. You are made to center everything in your life on me, to think of everything in terms of your relationship to me, to serve me unconditionally. That's where you'll find your joy. That's what the dance is all about. However, we know that this beautiful dance soon became static. It became static because we decided that we no longer wanted to center everything in our life around, uh, 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 around God, but rather center everything in our life around us. In our rebellion towards God, we decided that everything should revolve around us. So we stopped dancing and it broke. It broke. The system broke. And this is, actually has had an effect on how we view our possessions, how we view our things. Let me connect the dots for you. A.W. Tozer has a book called The Pursuit of God. And chapter two is worth the price of the book alone. Right in, in chapter two, it's entitled The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. It's so good and so solid that I was half tempted to just bring the book and read you the entire chapter two up here today, this morning. Uh, for the sake of time, I'll just summarize some of Tozer's thoughts from that chapter. You see, Tozer explains that in the Genesis account of creation, our possessions are merely just things. It's stuff. 
My high school English teacher used to always berate me for using that word stuff. She said, you can always be more specific. Don't use the word stuff. But for for our purposes this morning, I think the word stuff is a pretty accurate word for what I'm trying to communicate because that's all it is. It's just a bunch of stuff. And this stuff was actually created by God with the intent that that, that we should use it and enjoy it. But it was always meant to be external and subservient to man. Tozer says in the deep heart of the man was a shrine where none but God was worthy to come. Within him was God and outside was a thousand gifts which God had showered upon him. But then sin entered the world. We stopped dancing, and those very gifts of God have now taken the throne room of our heart. Within the human heart, things have taken over. In our sin, creation has been elevated above the creator. The gift has taken the place of the giver, and created order has now been distorted because of this unjust substitution. And now, it's in our fallen nature to do nothing but possess, to have and to take, to have and to hoard. Our identity is wrapped up in our stuff. And oftentimes, instead of possessing our stuff, our stuff possesses us. It has an an unhealthy hold on us as if we were chained to the very thing that we were meant to enjoy in the context of a perfect communal relationship with God. Listen to what Tozer says. I, I took this straight from the chapter because this is fantastic. I've got the words up on the screen. He says, there is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts have grown down into things and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Our hearts are rooted in our stuff and it's painful to try and detach from them. But the only remedy to this disease that Tozer talks about is what Jesus would call being poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit, it means to take on an inward posture that renounces our stuff. Tozer writes that being poor in spirit means reaching an inward state paralleling the outward circumstances of the common beggar in the streets of Jerusalem. See, I'm not saying that poor in spirit means that you need to go home and sell all your things on eBay. It's not what being poor in spirit is. What I am saying is that while you may have a lot, which if we live in America, you probably do have a lot. While you have a lot, you possess nothing. You have pulled the roots of every external thing that has a sinful hold on your heart. You are no longer a slave to what Tozer describes as the tyranny of things. This was a distinction in the Acts church. This is what it says in 
verse 32. Take a look at it again. It says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were unified. There was a, there was a community and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Nobody said, this is mine. This is mine. So while many things belong to me, I possess none of it. It's, it is, it is, its grip has loosened on me. That is being poor in spirit. And Jesus tells his followers on the Sermon on the Mount, he goes through what we call the Beatitudes. And the very first Beatitude is this idea of being poor in spirit. And what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because they receive the kingdom of heaven. Because they receive the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that their riches, those who are poor in spirit, their riches are not of this world, but they're in heaven. The poor in spirit, really all they're doing is there's a transaction. There's an exchange that's happening. They're, they're saying, they're saying that, that I recognize that the riches of the world will be destroyed and that they're going to go bad, that they're, they're going to spoil, that they're going to lose their glamour. I'm exchanging all of those things that will eventually lose their value for the riches of heaven. And I want you to listen at how Peter describes this inheritance, these riches. This comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. This is what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade a few weeks ago i live in summit township and um, they had what they call their annual spring cleanup essentially all this is is a designated time where you can bring your old junk around the house uh, that a garbage truck might not necessarily take and they will dispose of it for you Uh, this date this weekend is on my calendar every single year this is like a holiday for me. I, I look forward to the day that I can throw away my, my, my junk and, um, because it allows me to get rid of it. And I got to tell you that this year specifically, it was so liberating for them to take my stuff, right? I had already taken two trips to this place and I get home and I, I walk in the door and I look to my wife. I say, Sarah, what else can we throw away? That was great. That feels so good just to get rid of my stuff, right? Let's, let's look for more stuff to get rid of, right? If you go to the spring cleanup, though, it's really quite depressing. It really is because you drive, you drive your car up and you look to the left and there is just a mountain of old stuff that required a bulldozer to make space, I mean, and there were old, there were TVs, there were tractors, there was old furniture, toys, you name it, you name it. Things that at which, at one point were new and fresh and glamorous, things that which once held value were now decimated and reduced to nothing more than a junk pile. What Peter is saying And those verses that we read a moment ago is that Jesus gave himself as a sacrifice and died on the cross. And when he was resurrected, he was given new life. 
And just as he was resurrected, we share in that resurrection, right? We are in turn are given new life. We are given a a living hope. And one of the many perks of this new life in Christ is an inheritance in heaven. And how does he describe the inheritance? How does he describe the value as one that will, what, never perish, never spoil, never fade? Perhaps you've experienced what it's like as a child opening up a brand new gift on Christmas morning. You open it up and there's like a shiny gloss to it. It has like this allure to it. And you spend the hours in the coming days and in the coming weeks and in the coming months just playing with this toy because it's special and there's a draw to it and it's new and it has value, right? But over time, you start playing with the toy less and less. Over time, something replaces that toy. Over time, the thing just flat out breaks, right? What Peter is saying is that this inheritance that you're getting, these, these treasures that come along with being a follower of Jesus is like opening up that Christmas toy for the first time every day. It will never lose that value. It will never lose that allure. It will never lose that draw. It will never perish, spoil, or fade. It is glamorous for eternity. And it's going to be beautiful. It's a value that far surpasses any of our earthly treasures. The Acts 2 church broke the stranglehold that their possessions had on them. And they did this not by fighting, but by surrendering, by giving it up. They followed the model that Jesus set before them by surrendering all things, by saying, Lord, take the world, but give me Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. And as the group as the grip on our stuff loosens, our hands become open to the needs of other people. Our eyes become aware of the needs at hand among not just anyone in general, but specifically the the people within my church family. Our hearts grow empathetic to others around us. There's a scene at the end of of the movie Schindler's List that really displays what this looks like, this empathetic look. The movie tells the true story of uh, a German businessman named Oskar Schindler who worked during the uh, World War II era in Nazi Germany. And the man saved the lives of more than a thousand Jewish refugees from the Holocaust by employing them in uh, one of his factories during World War II. And there's a very powerful scene at the end of the movie where all the Jewish people that he saved are present and they are expressing their their gratitude towards Oscar Schindler. And Schindler responds by saying, I could have got more. I could, I could have gotten more. I could have, I could have saved more of my money and I could have saved more. And he goes on to explain how, he, he said, I threw away so much money. You have no idea how much money I wasted that could have been used to, to save more. You have no idea. I could have, I could have sold my car. 
And he goes over to his car and he starts pounding his car. I could have sold my car and that would have been, there could have been 10 more people that I could have saved. He's got this little gold pin attached to his suit. He said, I could have sold this gold pin. That would have been two more, at least one more. I could have done more. And it's this deep emotional moment as Schindler just breaks down to the ground and he weeps because of his great empathy for the Jewish people. He understands now firsthand what it means to be poor in spirit for the sake of those in need. What it looks like to give up our stuff so that we can help others in need. Here at FAC, let us open our eyes to the needs of those around us. Let us share a great empathy for those in need and let us be willing to do whatever we can to meet those needs. This is what we're called to as a community of believers. Oscar Schindler understands this concept, but he is not our ultimate model. Our ultimate model is Jesus Christ. Jesus, who had such a great compassion for a human race in need of a savior that he laid down his life in order to meet our ultimate need being salvation, reconciliation with God. He saw people, humankind, literally coming face to face with hell. And so he laid down his life to save you, to call out to you, to bring you into a reconciling relationship with God. If you have not yet chosen to follow Jesus and take advantage of what he has given you, what he has provided for you, what he has done for your need, I would ask that you wouldn't leave this morning until you do. Think about what Christ has done and the compassion that he had to you and and how he laid it all down for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a great compassion you have had for us. You didn't need to give anything, yet Christ gave it all. And we praise you for that, Lord. I praise you that while I was a sinner, while I was rebellious towards you, while I was separated from you, while there was a great chasm between you and me, Father, Jesus stepped in and gave his all so that I may have life. I ask, Father, that with that knowledge, that it would reflect who we are as a community of believers, Lord, that we would have a great desire to meet the, the earthly needs of so many people. I pray, Father, for the, for the ones who can provide for the needs that you would prick their hearts, Father. But once again, that it wouldn't be forced or out of obligation, but it would be from the goodness of their heart a spirit in their heart that you have instilled in them. Lord, I pray for our offering as we collect it, Lord. Once again, as people give their gifts and offerings, let it, let it be out of a willingness of their heart, Lord, and not out of obligation, Father. And I pray that this, the, the, these offerings that we will receive, that they would go to none other than helping those in need and glorifying the name of Jesus, making Jesus known. We are thankful, Lord, for what you've done. Let us respond by going out in the world to meet the needs of those around us. And in your holy name I pray, amen.